Heavenly Father, gracious God, we ask your blessing upon us as we begin a new week. And as we study Jeremiah 30, please bless us, bless our conversation, bless our learning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. For the days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their ancestors, and they shall take possession of it. These are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Thus says the Lord, we have heard a cry of panic, of terror, and no peace. Ask now and see, can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor? Why has every face turned pale? Alas, that day is so great, there is none like it. It is a, it is a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be rescued from it. On that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will break the yoke from off his neck, and I will burst his bonds, and strangers shall no more make a servant of him. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. But as for you, have no fear, my servant Jacob, says the Lord, and do not be dismayed, O Israel, for I am going to save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and no one shall make him afraid. For I am with you, says the Lord, to save you. I will make an end of all the nations among which I scattered you, but of you I will not make an end. I will chastise you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. For thus says the Lord, your hurt is incurable, your wound is grievous. There is no one to uphold your cause, no medicine for your wound, no healing for you. All your lovers have forgotten you. They care nothing for you. For I have dealt you the blow of an enemy, the punishment of a merciless foe, because your guilt is great, because your sins are so numerous. Why do you cry out over your hurt? Your pain is incurable. Because your guilt is great, because your sins are so numerous, I have done these things to you. Therefore, all who devour you shall be devoured, and all your foes, every one of them, shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall be plundered, and all who prey on you I will make a prey. For I will restore health to you, and your wounds I will heal, says the Lord, because they have called you an outcast. It is Zion, no one cares for her. Thus says the Lord, I am going to restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt upon its mound and the citadel set on its rightful site. Out, out of them shall come thanksgiving and the sound of merrymakers. I will make them many and they shall not be few. I will make them honored and they shall not be disdained. Their children shall be as of old. Their congregation shall be established before me, and I will punish all who oppress them. Their prince shall be one of their own. Their ruler shall come from their midst. I will bring him near, and he shall approach me. 
for who would otherwise dare to approach me, says the Lord, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And as he sat at dinner in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were also sitting with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. All right. So as we start Jeremiah chapter 30, we are in a portion of the book that I believe is brimming with hope. And chapter 30 begins with the word of the Lord coming to Jeremiah and commanding Jeremiah to write in a book all the words that God has spoken. And so if you're wondering why Jeremiah wrote this stuff down, this seems to be a direct commandment from God. This was an oral culture and writing was expensive. It was time consuming. There was no typewriter or printing press. And so to write prophecy down was a rare occasion. And it seems that it would take a command of God to do this for Jeremiah to write this stuff down. And so uh, lucky for us, this command was given and we can now study uh, the words God spoke to Jeremiah. But verse three is a familiar refrain, not only in the book of Jeremiah, but the Bible as a whole, for the days are surely coming, for the days are surely coming. These six words are really tied up with the promise of God. We remember last week, in Jeremiah 29, when God says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. And we talked about the meaning of that verse. And today, God is reminding Jeremiah, the days are surely coming when that promise will be a reality. But whenever you see those six words in the book of Jeremiah or in the Old Testament, it is always a response to a question that people ask, which doesn't show up directly in this book, but you can imagine the exiles are asking it, which is, how long, O Lord? If you read the Old Testament, the Psalms in particular, the Book of Lamentations, how long, O Lord? And I say that because as we study this book on exile and hope, the invitation is always to tap into the ways in which we individually feel like we are in exile and where we as a world and a culture are in exile and need to be brought home. And I think that tapping into that human question, how long, O oh Lord, allowing that to be real in our own life makes the book of Jeremiah real and opens us up to this wonderful phrase, the days are surely coming. And so I'm aware that last night in Maine, there was another mass shooting, 16 people died. And this is so commonplace now, we're a little desensitized to it. But I imagine for those who are not desensitized, for those who uh, lost family members in that um, shooting or friends or for that community, they're all asking at this moment, how long, oh Lord? Even if they're not Christians, they're crying out, when will gun violence end? When will this senseless tragedy end? Um, 
And the response is always, the days are surely coming. And the days are coming, God says, when I will restore the fortunes of my people and bring them back to the land I gave to their ancestors. And one of the things we're going to discover uh, later on in this chapter, especially with this mention of King David being raised up once again, because remember, King David's dead. And, and the promise is not that God's going to resurrect the historical David to rule the people in a specific geographical piece of land on earth, right? The land that ultimately we're all being led to is the real promised land of the kingdom of God. Now, contextually speaking, God is saying, I'm going to bring them back to Jerusalem. But as we read this as Christians, and we ask the question, how long, O Lord, the land that we are promised is the kingdom of God. And tied to the receiving of that land, verse 8, is God breaking the yoke off of our neck. This is the yoke of slavery that Isaiah speaks of when he talks about letting the oppressed go free and breaking every yoke. And this is imagery that Jesus plays with in his ministry when he says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Um, for those who need a reminder, a yoke was a piece of farming equipment, right? That would be placed around the neck of oxen to help them plow the fields and do various things. And so the image of yoke is one of servitude. And what I like to remind people is that the biblical promise is not that we will not have a yoke. The biblical promise is that we are invited to put on the yoke of Jesus, that we are invited to be the servant of Jesus as opposed to the servant of Pharaoh. And so God breaks the yoke, verse 8, not so we can live our life without a yoke, but rather so that we can put on the easy yoke of Jesus. And we can discuss a bit more about what that means. And, and we see that in verse 9, but they shall serve the Lord their God. To serve someone is to have a yoke. And so the yoke we receive is the yoke that enables us to serve the Lord our God. And then there's this curious business about also serving David their king. Now, again, David has been dead for hundreds of years. And so what does it mean that we get to serve David our king, whom God will raise up for us? Jeremiah is here expressing the hope and prophecy that a future king in the line of David would come to rule over God's people. So this is actually looking ahead to the coming of a Messiah who would establish a righteous and just reign. And so whenever we think about Old Testament prophecies that paved the way for Jesus's arrival, Isaiah often gets a lot of uh, the press coverage, and rightly so. There's lots of messianic prophecies there, but Jeremiah's got lots of them too. And this promise of a future king, according to David's line, would certainly for Christians point to Jesus. And because this king will be given, verse 10, we're told to have no fear that God is going to save us and then that we shall have quiet and ease and no one shall make us afraid. And I highlighted this 
verse, quiet and ease, and no one shall make Jacob afraid. And in my notes, the question I posed is, isn't this what we all seek? A life of quietness and ease where no one makes us afraid. You know, think about what causes you fear, whether it's an earthly enemy or the enemy of death. Ultimately, this vision of being in a renewed land of quietness and ease where God is with us and there is no fear. This seems to be the biblical vision of hope. And then in verse 11, God says, I am with you, says the Lord. Now, earlier in this chapter, or actually it's later in this chapter, sorrow, sorry, verse 12, where God talks about how your hurt is incurable, your wound is grievous. The reason that I paired Jeremiah 30 with Mark chapter 2 is because whenever Jesus says, I am the divine physician, you know, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, um, I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What Jesus is doing is claiming to be the one who can cure the incurable wound. Um, and so he is setting himself up to be that divine physician, to be the one raised up according to David, the people's king. But there's that wonderful line in scripture about God being with the people. I am with you. And we see that in Mark chapter two, where Jesus is with the tax collectors, with the Pharisees, with the sinners, with those who have made idols out of something other than God. And, and so this is um, a, a big course of, uh, uh, or a big um, uh, cause of misunderstanding amongst Jesus and the Pharisees. You know, the Pharisees get mad at Jesus for being with the sinners. And part of what Jesus is trying to communicate to them is that, you're all sinners, and this is the fulfillment of the prophecy. I am with you. I am here to save you, verse 11. And then we have that bit where God says, I will make an end of all the nations among which I scattered you, but of you I will not make an end. When God says, I will make an end of all the nations, clearly this cannot be understood as a promise that God intends to commit you know, genocide uh, for every people except ethnic Israel. I mean, aside from that just being absurd, it would contradict the larger message of the Old Testament and even the book of Jeremiah itself, where Israel is given as a light to the nations, right? We saw last week how Israel is sent into captivity in Babylon, told to plant gardens and vineyards and to settle down. And then God says, you know, your welfare and Babylon's welfare is bound up together. So seek the welfare of the city. And that in sending the people into exile, the people are actually forced to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 49 and be a light to the nations. And so that larger promise of being a light to the nations still stands. And so when God says, I'll make an end of all the nations, what he's really saying is that he's going to bring an end to the dominion of the foreign nations that had subjugated Israel during the exile. This doesn't nullify the greater promise of blessing the nations. This is a promise that God will bring an end to the dominion of all the nations 
that set themselves up in the place of God. And then verse 11, I will chastise you in just measure. And as I like to remind people, this is an extension of God's love, right? As it says in Hebrews, the Lord chastises those whom he accepts as his children. The Lord's discipline is an act of love. And so verse 13, God says, there's no medicine for your wound. There is no healing for you. And this again plays into Jesus stepping in and saying, I've got the medicine. Those who are well have no need of a physician. I am the physician. Verse 14, all your lovers have forgotten you. And I love this verse because, you know, the people's chief sin is idolatry. They are seeking other lovers. They're seeking other gods. And this always happens with our idols, right? If we put our faith in money or power or another person, it doesn't matter what the idol is. Whenever we put our faith in something other than God, that idol always forgets us. And again, you know, part of the larger um, theme of Jeremiah is this dance between remembering and forgetting. We forget God, God remembers us. Then God calls us to remember him. It's at the very center of our liturgy where we eat the bread and drink the cup to remember Jesus because at the heart of sin is a forgetfulness, right? We forget about God. Our idols forget about us, but God does not forget about us. And so the call here is to remember. And then the promise, verse 17, God says, I will restore you your wounds. I will heal. I will restore your fortunes, verse 18. Um, and uh, thanksgiving will abound, verse 19. Um, the last thing I want to point out is verse 21 and verse 22. Their prince shall be one of their own. Their ruler shall come from their midst. I will bring him near, he shall approach me, for who otherwise would dare approach me? You shall be my people, I will be your God. So this verse is speaking of a leader who's going to come from the midst of the people. This leader will have a special relationship with God. He will be able to approach God on behalf of the people, right? Who otherwise would dare approach me? Because God is holy, and this is a tradition where anyone who touches the mountain you know, dies on the spot because holiness and unholiness, they don't go together. And so there has to be someone special who can approach God. And this sounds a lot like the great high priest we find in Hebrews who enters the holy of holies on our behalf. And so as we go up to that verse about resurrecting David, and again, David's dead, we're talking about someone in the line of David and we return to that in verse 21 with a prince who can approach God on our behalf, which is about as clear of a messianic prophecy as we're going to find in scripture, right? That's what Jesus does, uh, our one mediator and advocate, as we say in the prayer book. And because of that, verse 22, you shall be my people and I will be your God. And that's why this chapter is just brimming with hope. You know, we go back to those six words, the days are surely coming, says the Lord. Okay, well, what are the days? What is surely coming? What is the promise? The promise is 
You shall be my people and I will be your God. You shall be my people and I will be your God. You shall be my people and I will be your God. Basically, as all of our lovers forget about us, all of our idols forget about us, as we forget about God, God says, I still remember. I always remember. You shall be my people and I shall be your God.